This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. It is a pretty dreary uh, Sunday out there, but uh, we're all fired up for an hour of science, and it's a day of immunology coming up, so we've got some really cool immunology stuff later in the show. But first up, uh, hello there, Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm looking forward to discussing some toasty science to keep us all warm on this autumnal morning. Yeah, it's a bit chilly. And Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And we uh, we were going to have Dr. Ailey, but uh, I think she's suffering the effects of a jet-lagged toddler. Oh. Which apparently is worse than the flu. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's been a pretty bad flu season, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking to Bron. She had the flu. You know, it's uh, it's going around early. So I'm a bit nervous. Oh, I just opened up flu shots at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah you saw that too. Yeah. I'm no, a bit nervous. Been a, um, there's been a summer spike in flu cases across uh, South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. I think we've had three times as many as much flu this year as the same time last year. Ooh. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. uh, if you care about your health and your community, get vaccinated. Yeah, especially for those who can't get vaccinated. Mm. That's a, that's the, the big deal. Um, so into some science news. Dr. Crystal, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so... Um, in terms of neuroscience, one of the kind of the pinnacle areas of research is this idea that one day we might be able to restore the voices of people who've lost the ability to speak. It's one yeah. of those kind of, you know, people who have, you know, degenerative disorders or, and who, who are unable to talk, you know, to be able to actually restore their function. And so, um, a piece of research caught my eye this week where a team of neuroscientists from the University of California in San Francisco have developed a new method to record and decode brain signals to actually create synthetic speech and you know it's an experimental technology so it was published in uh, the journal nature this week Um, but it's really looking at how to generate um, speech and sound um, purely from brain recordings and so the way they went about it was this they had five patients and they took the brain recordings using like a flexible web of electrodes that were kind of resting on the surface of the brain so it's quite invasive so the people Mm. that they used in the study were actually undergoing brain surgery for an epilepsy procedure and so they sort of were able to back the research onto the the existing surgery and so they they laid the arrays into the brain and then while the people were awake they um, asked them to read and so they read aloud and they recorded the brain signals and they also recorded their voices. And then what they did was they... Um they use that to map the brain activity. But rather than going directly from this brain signal equals this word, what they did was they mapped the brain activity to the movements of the vocal tract. So the actual the, oh, the motor signals yeah, right, that right. were being sent to the lips and the tongue and the larynx and the jaw. So they actually sort of did it in two parts. So the first part, they kind of created like a decoder. Kind of, um, They used um, a couple of uh, sort of uh, machine learning algorithms to kind of decode it and, um, and put together this um, sort of decoding uh, algorithm that sort of turned the brain signals into muscle movements and then they used a second set of um, machine learning algorithms to create the synthesizer which basically turned those um, vocal tract muscle movements into sound mm. and so it's kind of in two parts and so then they were able to kind of generate this um, synthetic speech and um, and it's really quite fascinating in terms of the results. Now the speech itself you would imagine it wasn't the same quality as um, as everyday speech um, it was quite good in terms of quite slow sounds, like a shh sound was quite clear. But, you know, some of the plosive sounds like b and p, you know, were, were a little bit fuzzy. But generally, when they... Um 
when they created these synthesized sentences, so they created about a hundred synthesized sentences and they used a, a platform and, and got people to sort of listen to them and they could kind of understand 50 to 70 percent of, of the words in full sentences, which is actually quite mm. amazing because up until now we've only been able to do this work kind of one word at a time. So yep. to actually be able to have full sentences and some of the example sentences were things like, don't do Charlie's dirty dishes <laughs> or um, critical equipment needs proper maintenance. Um, yeah, but, but to be able to have full sentences being created synthetically yeah. um, from uh, from uh, neural inputs and then be able to be able to um, have those understood, it's actually quite an amazing piece of research looking at the intersection of sort of artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms combined with linguistics and neuroscience to be able to look at how we could have these brain-controlled artificial voice kind of tracks to generate synthetic speech into the future. Mm. But presumably the testing part where you're doing the mapping requires the electrodes on the brain itself, but post that you don't need to do that presumably, or do you still need that for it to work? Uh, in terms of well, being able to like use the well, then they'd have a map of the signals, and they'd yeah. be able to then use that kind of like uh, algorithm to generate and project. Um, right, but, right. But yeah. at, but but at the moment, um, y- you wouldn't be able to do that in real time. But yeah. some of the research that's coming out of other places, like here in Melbourne, there's a new um, brain machine interface that's quite minimally invasive mm. that um, some Melbourne researchers are looking at. So if you think, well, if you could combine that technology with other pieces of technology, and so at the moment, all of this is very experimental. But you can start to see how we're putting together the pieces of the puzzle that might allow um, some of this technology to be used to restore speech for people into the future. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Dr. Ray. Uh, Dr. Shane, I, um, there was a development in recycling of polymers. Okay. So uh, for those of you that, that don't know, there are really two classes of polymers. You could say the ones we recycle can recycle and the ones that are really difficult to recycle. The ones we can recycle basically melt. When you heat them up, they melt. And so you can melt them down and then reform them uh, in their hot state and then let them cool down again. And those are called thermoplastics. Um, and, and that's actually probably the only polymers we can really recycle. And there's plenty of challenges about plastics. But at least ideally you can heat that up and cool it down and heat it up and cool it down. It doesn't degrade. Now, the, the, about 20% of the plastics we make are called our, our thermoset resins, and that means that the polymer chains have little crosslinks, and that gives them amazing temperature stability and, and strength, and so these are the things used in automotive applications and high-performance applications and planes and composites and making your fantastic tennis racket. Uh, I, do you play tennis, squash? I have played tennis, and okay. I have played squash. It's not quite the same thing as saying I play them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah but, but you, you kind of yeah, don't yeah. want the plastics in your aeroplane to be able to melt. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so these don't melt. And uh, they have great thermal stability, and that's why we use them, and they're yeah. used in electrical applications. But recycling them is a real pain because they don't really melt. They just thermally degrade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so this is a real challenge, 20% of our plastics. And you can't, even if you can figure out a way to break it down, it's never that great the second time around. So these things degrade thermally, so they're very hard to reuse. And so a lot of that goes to the polymer chemistries we use to get these fantastic strengths just aren't conducive to being broken down later. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's coupled with the fact that when you mix them with fibers and mm. additives and mm. stuff, that makes it harder to get mm. out too. One of the reasons we use them is they're fantastic to use because when we go to make the plastic, they're really low viscosity, so they can, like uh, if you think about a, uh, a tennis 
uh, racket. It's this fiber weave, and you can impregnate this. You have to impregnate this liquid in what looks like a woven fabric. So you need something that's really flowable and easy to get in there, and then once it's in, uh, become a, a, a strong polymer. So researchers at uh, California, oops, oh my gosh, sorry, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory have come up with a polymer chemistry that's pretty transformative in that they've made a thermoset, so a cross-linked polymer, that they think they can recycle. And it, it's a new chemistry in uh, oh, diketone enamine bonds, which you know just oh, rolls those. off the yeah, yeah those those ones. Um, anyway, with they, they they what's great is when you mix this polymer monomer together, it actually spontaneously forms a polymer, but it can be recycled at room temperature. Hmm. Uh, and and so they think it's probably the first really big step in in developing a chemistry that can go towards making high performance polymers that can actually be recycled. Now, how, how can it be recycled? At that's a great question. <laughs> so they don't need high temperature, but what they did find is this particular polymer, and, and we've tried with other things, but we've never had something that had a great switch. It will dissolve in very concentrated acid. So hmm. a a level of of acid that you would not normally encounter in in the world, in the environment. Uh, but you can actually, it will actually dissolve the crosslinks. And what they found was is they, they, they actually can get it to depolymerize down to its original molecular building blocks or monomers, and then they can reuse those and polymerize yeah. them again. And so it's actually kind of exciting in, in the chemistry world because nobody's really found a chemistry that was conducive to this before. And they actually tried it on real things. Like they actually took a... Uh, a, a fiber weave of composites and made a polymer and then pulled it apart and showed they could recover things and and actually did it with additives as well yeah. and it's a really good first step they yeah. they have they now great scientific discovery the the challenge is they do use quite a lot of acid and quite a lot of base to get it to work yeah. uh and so base that comes down to they're going to need a good chemical engineer or two to get this on an industrial scale. Yeah. But yeah. it's got a really big potential, and it's probably the first thing where this ought to get others to think about this chemistry and, and optimize it. So, mm. you know, it, it sounds really exciting and promising, but... Watch this space? Well, you got to watch this mm. space. Nobody builds a plane out of plastic until <clears throat> you've really tested it for quite a few years to make sure it works. So in the when you switch chemistries... <laughs> It's it's funny. It's a bit like drug development, right? You know, no. I was trying not to throw throw at the the medical analogy of it's a small step before we really get there in ten or fifteen years from now. But it, but but it but is similar. You've got to put things through long term trials to make sure that there's no unintended consequences or side effects before you build and fly yeah. a plane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm and still waiting for the one hour flight to London. <laughs> I've been promised that for forty years. I, I Come on, Musk. A space trip, not, a, not, not <laughs> an atmospheric it. plane trip. I'll take it. Anyway, yeah. so it, it's a it's a pretty good good step in chemistry, yeah. and, and those chemists sometimes they're pretty clever. Yeah, anyway. cool stuff. Well, I was going to mention something that I I think is this is absolutely fascinating to me because I wasn't aware of a lot of what was going on here, but um, it's kind of a one of those. Subtle warnings, but an important one. There's a, I'm not sure if you're aware, but about a billion people get uh, most of their calories a day from a crop called cassava. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? And, this, you know, and this is, um, you know, it's a root-like sort of vegetable. And South America, Africa, Asia, you know, this is widespread. But about 20% of this crop's lost each year through um, something called mosaic disease, which is pretty, pretty nasty. And there's been some work done by a number of groups, actually led by the University of Alberta, but also University of League in Belgium and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, where they've been looking at the possibility of actually modifying the cassava plant with the good old 
CRISPR-Cas9 editing tool to see whether or not they can make it resistant to this particular virus. And so what they did was they, they edited the plant, they made, you know, and then they started testing it in the lab against this virus. And much to their surprise, they found that it wasn't resistant to the virus, but it helped the virus adapt and become more virulent and cause a greater degree of problems. So essentially what they've put this down to is the idea that um, in in restricting this plant's, or, you know, restricting this virus's ability to attack this plant after the modification, they've provided essentially a selection pressure. So, you know, a, a reason for the virus to mutate and the ability for the virus to mutate in ways that wasn't expected. So in trying to make this plant less susceptible to this problem, they've actually created a much, much bigger problem than they originally thought they had. And the researchers are really interesting because they've, they've sort of they've put this out and they've said, well, you know, look, you've got to be really careful here. Um, when you do this sort of gene editing, the anticipated result isn't necessarily the one you're going to get. And in this case, it was quite you know, disastrous. Had this been field tested... I was to say, this is all in a lab and contained, All in right? a lab, well uh, contained. But they're... they're, they're their request basically to researchers is make sure you do this level of analysis before you do proper field testing because in their case they actually they did a lot of um they sequenced hundreds of viral genomes after they did this to work out what was going wrong because they they initially couldn't work out why the plant was you know it's being killed off basically and they found that the the virus that it was supposed to be now immune to actually wasn't there but the mutated versions of the virus were everywhere and there were genomes you know floating around all over the place that it had mutated into that were more problematic than the original one so they, they've sort of said well, look you know CRISPR-Cas9 has you know already been shown to have a lot of benefits in a lot of food and other industries and that's really important not to have this as a you, you know don't ever use CRISPR-Cas9 so it's terrible but what they're suggesting is in terms of crops and food production and so forth you've got to do the proper testing and the proper genome analysis afterwards because you just don't know so when i mean how before we had gene editing mm. we had hybrid crops mm. yeah and that people would crossbreed crops for particular strains and that you know we grow observational crops for 10 years ahead of time and the rice we're eating now is not the same rice we ate 10 years ago or the 10 years before that so those things take time but i was i was but there's a lot of learning that comes out of those so did they have any correlations between the past history of the crossbreeding of cassava and observational data to know what to edit yeah i think i think what well they they know what this um what the susceptibility of cassava is to this virus. So that's what they corrected, but then the virus adapted as, as a result of that because it was pressured to do so. So it, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, this is an example where that's happened and not all examples are the same. You know, like in not all examples this happens, but in this particular one, which is obviously a very important crop to the world's food industry, you have to make sure you get it right. And, and it's really great to see this three groups of researchers doing such extensive analysis of the outcomes of this so that they can see that yeah, in this case we're not going to adapt this crop in this way because if you do you're not actually going to solve the problem you're going to make it worse so mm-hmm. anyway um I, I think it's a as i say it's a bit of a warning story but it's it's a good news story where the analysis is done properly and you know well, avoid it, bad outcomes it's actually sort of a success because <clears throat> yeah. five years ago we couldn't have said let's edit this one gene <clears throat> yeah right absolutely. you know let, yeah. let's actually see if yeah. yeah, so interesting stuff. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. We'll be talking about some interesting research coming out on Parkinson's disease. Three, two, one. Ah. 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein to Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Trevor Chong. He is from the Monash Institute of Cognitive and Clinical Neurosciences at Monash University. Trevor, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Look, it's it's really fascinating, um, the stuff that I saw in the press release from, from Monash a few weeks back. And, and because of the Easter break, it took us a couple of weeks to get you in, but we're, we're pretty excited to have you here. You work on Parkinson's disease. That's right. And what I thought we could do first is just talk a little bit about what the disease is, but in particular, you work on more the parts that aren't the physical mm-hmm. attributes of Parkinson's. So give us, give us the rundown on what's happening in Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. and then what some of those attributes are. Sure. Well, I think um, most people, when they think about Parkinson's disease, will think about it as a disorder of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that stems back from when it was first described by James Parkinson in uh, 1817 when he described it as the shaking palsy. So people yep. often think of Parkinson's disease as um, the problems with movement, uh, with the tremor, with the stiffness, problems with balance. Um, but uh, if you ask any patient with Parkinson's disease, they'll tell you that they suffer from a whole lot of other uh, non-motor symptoms as, as well. So problems with attention, with memory, hmm. with uh, organization, planning, mood, sleep, their bowels. So there, there are a whole host of other symptoms which traditionally haven't been as well recognized um, as the motor problems. But a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease will say that these non-motor symptoms are as important, if not sometimes more important, yeah. than their motor problems. But traditionally they've been um, under-recognized and we still don't have really great ways of assessing some of these problems and treating them. Uh, and that's uh, that's been the emphasis of our work, as you said. Yeah. Now, I mean, what exactly is Parkinson's disease? Maybe that's a question that no one knows, but uh, it, it sounds like, you know, when you talk about m- motor function and mm-hmm. you talk about all these other things, that sounds like so many different parts of Indeed. the brain at the same time. So what, what's what's mm. going on in the brain or, or the rest of the body with Parkinson's? Yeah, so with Parkinson's disease, there's a, a, particular, uh, there, there's a particular part of the brain that produces dopamine, mm-hmm. um, brain cells that produce dopamine. Uh, and in Parkinson's disease, these brain cells degenerate or they, they die over a a period of time. So what patients with Parkinson's disease suffer from is, is a disorder of, um, of low levels of dopamine, and that has consequences um, throughout the brain. Uh, and dopamine has an important role in movement, in planning movements, and, and that's why they get the problems with uh, stiffness and tremor and slowness of movement that you see. But dopamine is one of those fascinating neurotransmitters that has a whole host of other roles as well, mm. including um, things like memory and motivation, uh, and that's where you get these other non-motor problems too. Um, so it's a, it's a disease that unfortunately tends to progress um, over time, uh, and we don't have um, a cure for Parkinson's disease as yet, but we do have a lot of good ways of, of treating it or managing its symptoms. In, in terms of, I mean, I'm quite familiar with things like Alzheimer's disease mm. and the period over which that, that progresses. I mm. mean, how does Parkinson's compare to that? Is, is it decades or is it a shorter period? It's, uh, it's very much um, individual, so it, it, it's similar to, Park, uh, so to Alzheimer's disease in the sense that it is a neurodegenerative condition mm-hmm. which um, slowly progresses over time, but um, it's quite individual, so some people will progress um, faster than others. It's a bit difficult to predict, um, and uh, but often people who uh, with Parkinson's disease who pass away will pass away from from causes other than the Parkinson's right. disease itself. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the symptoms themselves can be quite severe, uh, and it becomes um, tricky managing it, especially in the later parts of the illness. Mm. In terms of the the cognitive aspects, I mean, what mm. I mean, we we're very familiar with Alzheimer's again, you mm. know, the memory loss and so forth. Um, what what sort of cognitive changes and behavioural changes are there with Parkinson's disease? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. So uh, there are problems with attention. 
um, problems with memory, remembering things, uh, and also decision making and, and planning as well. So these are quite uh, can be quite pronounced, uh, mm. and uh, it's still unclear about the best ways of uh, of treating these problems. And part of it is because we don't really understand the um, the, the neurobiology of um, of what goes wrong um, in Parkinson's disease to give rise to these these problems. Mm. Um, so we've what we've tried to do is focus on motivation uh, and the problems with apathy that individuals with Parkinson's disease have to see whether we might have might be able to develop new ways of uh, of treating that particular problem. So, so with I mean, let's talk about that because motivation means a very, it's a very interesting concept because mm. I can be demotivated because I feel unwell in other mm. regards. Mm. Are we talking about that, or are we talking about the, the sort of baseline motivation the person has just in general? Yeah. Uh, is, is it one or both? Or Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think a lot of us have this intuitive understanding of motivation. It's that kind of, that drive that gets you up in the morning mm. to, to go to work. Um, it's, um, and, and a lot of us have, uh, are familiar with this experience where you just can't be bothered doing something. Some of your, your listeners now might be still in bed or lying mm. on the couch at 11.30 on a I Sunday so. morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, but, but for healthy individuals, we can, we can get over that and we yep. can overcome, um, any sort of effort that's involved to achieve a particular goal. Um, but with quite a few patients with Parkinson's disease, about 40%, they, they suffer from a disorder of motivation known as apathy, yep. um, where they, they really just, um, don't have that drive and that has an impact on their medical care, on their quality of life and even, um, burden, uh, carer related burden. So, uh, it's quite mm. a, a significant problem that uh, that can occur and what what we've tried to understand is um, or it's, is to address the question that you asked at the beginning really which is um, what are these problems with motivation that people have is it uh, people with Parkinson's disease have is it just um, sort of normal motivation gone wrong or, or, mm. or is it something uh, more significant and what we've found is that the problems with dopamine that I mentioned earlier have a, a critical role in the development of apathy in these individuals. So the low levels of dopamine that patients have actually um, are a cause for the, the apathy and the low motivation that patients uh, experience. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I always come back to whenever I hear something like that is in the rest of the population that doesn't have Parkinson's disease, if you have low levels of dopamine, do you have motivation problems? Mm. Uh, that's a, a very good question. Usually in um, in healthy individuals, our levels of dopamine are sort of at a, at a sweet spot mm. uh, and uh, that allows us to function optimally to have the the right levels of motivation to overcome any any sorts of periods where we we just feel like we can't be bothered um it's uh, still an open question about whether some people who are perhaps more motivated than others have a little more dopamine uh, floating around than than other individuals do that's uh that's uh, an interesting question that's still unanswered um forgive this is really naive but is there any correlation between low dopamine level and people with depression Oh, that's a, yeah, a very good question because um, d- uh, low levels of motivation, so apathy and depression do overlap quite a bit. Uh, and tr- uh, for a long time, it was thought that apathy was just a symptom of depression. It was um, a, a, just went along with depression. But now we know that they're two quite separate things. Um, so although apathy and depression might co-occur, mm-hmm. they can each occur independently. Uh, so uh, the um, low levels of motivation that you get in depression um, uh, could just represent an overlap between two separate uh, syndromes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been, uh, Trevor, you've been looking at 
you know, a trial basically to see, you know, what you can do about this with regards to dopamine. Uh, tell us about that. So what we did was um, it was a, a study involving um, 20 patients with Parkinson's disease um, that we recruited uh, in Victoria through the help mm-hmm. of uh, Parkinson's Victoria and, uh, and uh, um, hospitals um, around the, the state. And what we tried to do was understand uh, the cognitive motivation that um, individuals with Parkinson's disease may or may not have. So by cognitive motivation, I mean that sort of willingness to invest mental energy or, or cognitive effort uh, in pursuit of a particular goal. Uh, and what we found was that um, patients with Parkinson's disease had lowered levels of cognitive motivation, but when we tested the same individuals on dopaminergic treatment, their levels of cognitive motivation were restored to the levels of healthy controls. So so actually their motivation was indistinguishable from healthy controls when they were tested on uh, dopaminergic treatment. So that was um, uh, quite striking for us because there's been a bit of work done in the past looking at the willingness of patients to invest physical effort, but yep. not so much their willingness to invest cognitive effort. Mm. So I this was um, quite a, 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 an interesting finding for us that dopamine mm. had that effect as well on cognitive motivation. Sorry. How do you test cognitive motivation? Like just from a really operational mm. research perspective, mm-hmm. like, you know, like what's the test for that? Yes, that's um, another good question because that's what has hampered the field quite a bit over the years. So in the past, motivation and apathy has just been measured through um, traditional questionnaire-based measures. I ask you, about how you feel and how you're feeling about doing various things and that's how we quantify lowered levels of motivation. And that can be really difficult in this patient group. Indeed, that's right. Because of the problems that you've already Mm. talked about with memory and recall and are are they objective about their own apathy? (laughs) Exactly, and we find that there's quite a a difference between what a patient might report and what a a carer might report Uh, and that that is um, a a big problem with the field. So what we've um, that was one of the challenges that faced us. What we tried to do then was develop a a laboratory-based test um, that was quite intuitive. Essentially, um, we trained people on a a cognitively effortful task, which was a a computer-based task, and we increased the amount of difficulty. um, There were different levels of difficulty for this task, and we just asked patients and controls how much effort they would be willing to put in for various rewards. Um, and by systematically varying the amount of effort that they had to put in and the amounts of rewards that we could give them, mm. what we could do was computationally model how willing people were to, to invest effort. And that gave us a very objective way of quantifying um, cognitive motivation. Yeah, I love that. That's very, I, I, Every now and then I, I think I should do an IQ test and I get about three questions in them like, I just don't have yeah. a, I couldn't be bothered. Um, it, it sounds to yeah, me... Yeah, but is, is, that, is that just a, a symptom of overconfidence? No, or? no, it's a symptom of laziness okay. in my case. But, um, but it's interesting, these sorts of tests, I can see how they would work very well because, you know, if the reward is minimal... Mm but the effort is great exactly. and, and you can do the exact same thing before and after the exactly. treatments and you know different questions of course but you know exactly and that's that's yeah. exactly what we did uh, yeah, and well. uh, so it was quite quite <clears throat> compelling uh, and are you we... getting them to play bejeweled blitz uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on no but that's actually a great idea for a next experiment <laughs> yeah. I'll keep that one in mind <laughs> yeah, a, I was thinking you could put them in a room full of people who had seen the latest Game of Thrones episode yeah. and you hadn't and how much effort it would take to stay in that room yeah. for like 10 minutes and you know um I think it's interesting to me. So the, the dopamine treatments here have had an effect on apathy. Uh, you, you mentioned a whole range of, of things that dopamine affect. 
have you looked at any of the others and are they are they having similar attractions from such you know devastating states yeah so we haven't um, but the um, there's been a lot of research looking at that um, and some of these um, functions do improve um, mm. with dopamine treatment others uh, less so um, so it's that's part of the challenge of Parkinson's disease in the sense that getting the balance right is important uh, and there are a whole host of uh, medications around to treat Parkinson's disease, and some might have different effects uh, mm. to others. So that's um, that's a challenge that's still open to the field at the moment to try and refine our understanding of which medications work better to treat which um, parts. Which, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that was actually going to be my question was about the the personalisation of um, medication regimes mm. because that's really what a lot is has has been quite successful for overcoming some of the movement issues associated with Parkinson's. That if you have an objective measure of movement, then you can then tailor um, medication regimes. So would you see? Uh, I'm actually more interested in the test um, and and what you see as that test as a diagnostic potentially into mm. the future. Like is that something that? But you've developed it to answer a research question. But could that something that could become therapeutically valuable or clinically valuable in in terms of tailoring medication into the future? Yeah, we're very excited about that yeah. um, exact possibility because with a, an objective way of quantifying motivation and apathy, that means that uh, if we have new treatments that are available, there'll be a way to monitor responses to that, whereas in the past uh, th- there hasn't been a lot of incentive for new treatments to be developed because th- the ways of measuring its effect uh, is a-, a little bit subjective and ambiguous. Mm. So now we've got these new metrics that we can use to, to quantify apathy and that then um, gives more room for the development of new treatments. It gives more room for us to be able to objectively quantify apathy and its different types, not just in Parkinson's disease, but potentially in other diseases mm. in which apathy is very mm. common. With dopamine, Trevor, is this the sort of thing that will be able to be applied in a long-lasting sense, or is it one of those compounds that you get used to and you know its effectiveness will drop off over time with patients? Mm. Uh, it sh- so the effect of dopamine itself um, should persist um, <laughs> over the course of the, the lifetime. But what you see in patients with Parkinson's disease is that um, their responsiveness to dopamine decreases over time. Right. That's not, though, the result of the being on the drug for a long period of time. It's just the fact that over time, as I mentioned at the uh, the top of the program, uh, these dopamine-producing cells slowly degenerate. So mm. the, lo- the lower right. efficacy of the drug is not because of the drug itself, but because of the, the progression of the, the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, if you, if a patient didn't have that com- that degenerative component, they stayed on dopamine for whatever other reason. Uh, that effect should persist. Yeah. Mm. Oh, look, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the, the results must have been pretty surprising. I mean, this isn't. You're not talking about a you know a twenty percent improvement. You're talking about a return to normal state, Indeed, right? Which that's is, right. Yeah, I mean, that must yeah. have blown you guys away. Yeah. It was. It was. Um, it was striking. So yeah. we were very impressed by the by the findings, um, and it was uh, a very robust and replicable finding. Uh, yep. And we we're. Uh, um, yeah, so we're very excited by it. Yep. Well, congratulations. It's, it's a great piece of work, and um, hopefully it will lead to some really good treatments in the future for people with this disease because it's, as you say, I mean, all the things that go wrong, That and I think it's good It's good for people to discuss just how many there are. Indeed. And it's not just the movement. I mean, the, some of the other ones you mentioned are, you know, equally horrific. Absolutely. And um, if you can pull one of them out, fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Trevor, thanks so much for coming on today and talking about... My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. Trevor Chong is from the Monash Institute of Cognitive and Clinical Neurosciences at Monash University. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we're back in a moment uh, with a special guest talking about Day of Immunology and all things immunological. I think I said that right. Three, triple, 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We have uh, our second guest in the studio, Professor Mimi Tang. Now, she is part of this amazing collaboration down on the Royal Children's Hospital campus, which involves the hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and the University of Melbourne. As a result, she is from the Department of Allergy and Immunology at the Royal Children's Hospital. She is a group leader in allergy and immune disorders at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and a professorial fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Mimi, did I miss anything? No, but thank you. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's important, though, for people to realise that there are these three groups yes. working collectively on that campus, which is one of the reasons why so many great things are happening down there, which is unusual to find that um, in a hospital precinct. Exactly. That's actually a real advantage to researchers and clinicians in the, in the space. Mm. Um, you get to interact really closely with clinicians, basic scientists, and also then, you know, deliver whatever you're discovering to um to, to the patients. students yeah. patients yeah it's really yeah. a very um efficient way to because, actually conduct research because don't forget you're also the founder of a startup yeah as well as all this <laughs> yeah yeah also there's all sorts of stuff coming out of that place um in fact they fixed my son's broken nose there on friday it was oh, all good yeah i didn't do it um <laughs> it fell over uh now but we, we've got you in today in particular because it's um, International Day of Immunology is coming up on the 29th, which is tomorrow, um, and you're involved. Tell us a little bit about what's happening for, for this uh, great day. Yeah, so International Day of Immunology was first uh, set up in 2005, mm-hmm. and it started out in Europe, um, an in initiative by the International Union of Immunological Societies, and the okay. goal is really to raise awareness of the importance of research in immunology, and and the importance of the immune system, not just to fight infections, but to protect us against all of the non-communicable chronic illnesses that mm. you know we're afflicted with in our modern society. So cancers, um, allergic problems, autoimmune disorders, um, metabolic disorders. Mm. So the immune system is really fundamental to regulating our lifetime risk for all of these conditions. And yeah. so the purpose of the day is to um, pull together all of the global communities around immunology, help the community better understand the importance of the immune system and uh, the importance, therefore, of immunology research. Mm. It, it, it's interesting to me, I mean, I think for about a decade now I've been saying on the show that, you know, the immune system's my favourite new thing, which, uh, you know, as, as a physics guy, that's, that's, that's a big call because, you know, generally <laughs> I don't like biological stuff. But it's... It, to me, the, the complexity of it is far beyond most of the things we see in biological systems. And it seems every year it seems as though there's another complexity to it and another thing that we're working out. Is it, is it the sort of golden age of immunology at the moment? I mean, I, I imagine some of that's partly coming from the funding that immunologists are getting for cancer treatments. But we seem to be learning so much more at the moment about the immune system. Yeah, I think... You know, this has been evolving over the last few decades, but certainly the immune system is central to regulating a range of um, processes in the body. It's Mm. not just fighting infections, as I said earlier. So there's this really close interaction between the microbiota. We're learning more about that. Um, Also, um, the immune system and the brain and the immune system and the metabolic responses. Mm. So it, it is turning out that the immune system is so fundamental to our health and um, well-being 
that there is a great focus on it. And yeah. it is very complex. Um, it's not just about, you know, a few different types of cells that coordinate together to mount a response. Um, there is this uh, very complex interaction with the neural system, the immune responses, the gut microbiota. Mm. I mean, I'm kind of sounding repetitive here, but uh, yeah. it is a complex system. Yeah, I mean, immune's almost the wrong word for it these days, isn't it? Like, it's, it's so much more complicated than, than just that. There's, there's so much going on. And now, in terms of... Um, well, can I ask you an immune system question that I've always wanted to ask? On a given day, how many different things, uh, do we know how many different things we're fighting off? Like how many different ailments, uh, so the immune system sort of saying, no, nah, you're not getting in, beat you, like how many things are we exposed to? Well, goodness me, I would say thousands and thousands because every single thing we're exposed to, um, mm. the immune system makes a decision, is it harmful or is it not? So you will recall there are two aspects to the immune system. There's the innate <coughs> yep. um, immune system as well as the adaptive. What that means is the innate immune system protects us generally against things without necessarily recognising what they are. Mm -hmm. um, the adaptive actually is more specific and protects us by recognising an antigen and making a decision about what to do. Now, the innate immune system is very important to us. You know, we contact thousands of bacteria mm. continuously every day through the skin, through the airway, through the gut, and uh, we are making an active decision to say we won't respond inappropriately to these harmless antigens. Mm. At the same time, uh, as you know, we have trillions of bacteria in our guts, and again, the majority of those are beneficial microbes that live with us as commensal organisms. So we're making an active decision each day. The immune system decides that uh, it won't reject these bacteria, it won't fight out or fight off these bacteria. Yeah. Again, at the same time, we're probably having uh, spontaneous mutations in our body. Yeah. Um, the immune system's coming along, cleaning up any of those errors. Yeah. Uh, the viruses that you might encounter just walking down the street, somebody sneezes at you, you know, coughs in your face, you're fighting those off as well, all at the same time. So yeah. I would say there's thousands and thousands of encounters that the immune system every day. is responding to. This every is day. one of the things where I, I think we don't give credit appropriately to our immune system because, like, I was thinking earlier, you know, I bumped into Bron from Radio Marinara and the other week she got the flu and we were in close contact in the studio. I was like, well done, immune system. I didn't get the flu off her. <laughs> you know, and I, give, I gave it credit for one thing. Yeah. But you know, that's why I asked, like, just how many things are we dealing with? And, and often when we have cancer guests in here, I, I, I ask the question, do, do we have cancer all the time, right? And our immune system clears it. Um, it's only when that, that process starts to fail that we have a problem. But my understanding is the immune system is constantly clearing these errors from our system. Correct, yeah. correct. There's constant surveillance. Yeah. Um, now, Let's talk about your work because you work in the area of, of allergies and allergens in particular. Um, you're still working on peanuts? Yes, that's our yep. focus at the yep. moment. So uh, how's that going? Well, we're excited. Um, it's going very well. For I don't know if everyone would be familiar with the work, so maybe I start mm, just yep. by explaining what it is. You know, I um, started working specifically on food allergies when I, um, I'd taken some time off work and um, came back to work full-time uh, in 2006 and really noticed that a lot of patients were coming in with food allergy. Mm. And so I was frustrated at that time, thinking, we don't have anything to offer patients. We just say, you have to avoid your allergen. Right, yeah. And that frustrated me. So I was trying to find a way to improve management, a way that we might be able to switch off the allergy. And so I had, in my past research, been looking at immune responses, the role of the microbiota, 
later had become involved in probiotics, um, discovered that probiotics are actually very potent immune modulators. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had an idea <laughs> that if you coupled a probiotic immune-modifying adjuvant together with food immunotherapy, you might actually be able to instruct the immune system to respond differently mm. to an allergen that the body was already allergic to. Right. So um, we started our work, gosh, be over a decade ago now, where we ran a proof-of-concept randomized trial comparing a combination of a probiotic together with peanut oral immunotherapy for the treatment of peanut allergy. We had 62 children with peanut allergy enroll in the trial and randomized them half and half to get the treatment or a placebo. And after 18 months of treatment, uh, we were very pleased to see that 80% of the kids, roughly, um, who received the active treatment appeared to have their allergy switched off as compared to 4% in the placebo group. Now, now when you say switched, I mean, you say switched off there, which is Mm. interesting to me. You're not saying reduced. No, it appeared as if it was switched off. So in the clinical setting, if I want to know whether you have a peanut allergy and I'm not sure, I would do a peanut challenge. Okay. Now, that challenge would take you up to a cumulative dose of, say, 4,000 milligrams of peanut protein, which is about... Um, well, I've got to do my math, 16 peanuts. Right, okay. <laughs> and yep. um, if you passed that, I would say to you, you're okay. I don't think you've got peanut allergy. You're yep. fine. If you fail it, I would say, yeah, you've got peanut allergy. Okay. So what we did at the end of our trial was we did a challenge, four-gram cumulative dose challenge to peanut um, to test for desensitization first, which I'll come back to and explain mm. in a moment. Then if they passed that challenge, we stopped all treatment eliminated peanut from the diet for eight weeks and came back in and did the challenge again. Right. Now, if they pass that second challenge after having had no treatment oh, for eight right. weeks, oh, yeah. sorry, it was four weeks actually, um, we considered that they appeared as if they did not have food allergy to peanut at that moment. Yeah. And we call that sustained unresponsiveness. Hmm. Um, it's a technical term. Uh, consume, more consumer-friendly term might be remission. Yeah, because sustained unresponsiveness sounds a bit negative for a really positive outcome. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So actually um, some experts in the field last year came up with a better term. They call it remission. Yeah. I, I kind of like that better Yeah, yeah, myself. I think that's better, yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we th- basically we could show that they had remission of their allergy because off treatment for four weeks, hmm. we didn't see evidence of the allergy. Now, we came back oh let me just clarify so when we discovered that uh, 80% of these kids were able to eat the 4 grams of peanut protein without reacting Mm. after a month off treatment we said you should go home and incorporate peanut into your diet freely without saying how much how often and we just sent them away Mm. Um, and four oh, years later, I can only imagine a mother and the first time, or, or a <laughs> yeah, father, yeah, yeah. any parent, did, like the first time they gave their previously allergic child like a peanut butter sandwich, yeah. and just went, "Okay, kid, yeah. let's try it." Yeah, out. Standing by with an <laughs> epipen. Well, to... most most parents would be pretty timid. I'd I say. know, right? <laughs> yeah. But you do it. I mean, you'd have a picnic out on the lawn out the front of the Royal Children's. Right? I mean, that's that's what I do. <laughs> so they just well, lay down you, a blanket and. But I don't know because you know they have passed this huge yeah, challenge. Yeah, they yeah. they know. Um, at the end of the treatment, they don't know what they received, of course, right. in terms of the therapy. But if they know they've passed. But they yeah. know they've passed, so they know that their child has been able to tolerate um, four grams. That's, you know, yeah. actually, it's just a lot to of put peanuts. it in context, yeah. it's, um, you know those two little, you know those packets of peanut butter you get 
when you go to oh, cafeterias and like when you, yeah, yeah the little ones yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. little ones yeah so it's two of those so wow. it's like having two slices of peanut, peanut butter, butter on toast, toast. yeah but peanut but these, are, these are kids who are exposed to the smallest quantity of it normally you know some of them have anaphylactic shock or, or there's all sorts of you know a, a scaling of responses but it's pretty bad yeah i mean so these were kids who had definite peanut allergy mm. um and there would be a range in there. Some of the kids were reacting to quite low amounts, so less than a third of a peanut or a mm. quarter of a peanut, let's say. Yeah. Um, others were reacting to more. But I would say consistently families are understandably very anxious yeah, yeah. about having their children exposed to peanut when they know they're allergic. Yeah. So, you know, we try to hold the hand of yeah, yeah, the of patient and the families uh, but, during our trial. But, Mimi, what's, I mean, what's the role of the probiotics in this? I mean, do you, do you know, because you mentioned the microbiota in, 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 in the gut. You know, this is something we, we hear more and more about every day at the moment. There's, there's something going on there. Um, there's that link with the immune system. So, so how are the probiotics sort of because you've been doing the peanut challenge for a while you know we've heard about that before at the children's but the probiotics is you're saying switching it off that i mean that's something else that's not desensitizing that's teaching the immune system not to worry about this anymore yeah so uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about desensitization Mm. so i can be sure everyone understands what i'm saying so desensitization is where you don't switch off the underlying allergy and what you're doing is just increasing the amount of peanut that a patient can eat before they have a reaction. Right. Okay? So you're, you're basically, um, you're discharging really the mast cell reaction, the allergy reaction over time, and um, the body becomes less able to react because it's been reacting along the way. Right. But the underlying allergy, it's still there. To maintain that level of protection, you keep eating the food on a regular basis. If you stop, Right. You're allergic again, yep. and you will have a reaction. Yep. So what we're talking about is where you're actually starting to modulate the underlying allergy response. And as you pointed out, what we're thinking is happening, because I, I actually, we are still investigating how it works, okay? So mm. I don't have hard evidence behind me. This is really a hypothesis of how I think it's working. Yep. But what we think is happening is that the probiotic um, is able to induce a tolerance signal to the immune system and instruct the immune system to respond differently to the peanut antigen today mm-hmm. when the two of these things are seen together. Yep. You see, when you just give the antigen on its own, if you're already allergic to peanut and I feed you peanut, which is the oral immunotherapy part of the yep. treatment, with nothing else, I don't believe that that will be very effective at changing how you respond to peanut because the immune system is really clever at getting better and better at responding doing what it yeah, does yeah, yeah of course so if it already is an allergy response that yep. you have it remembers seeing yeah. it each time will only make it remember better yeah. in my mind yeah, yeah. yep and Makes so sense. that was the reason we added in the probiotic but these are not just any probiotics like you can't replicate no. this at home it's not no. it's not a blanket kind of any probiotic i'm assuming it's very specific to the to the to the therapy you're giving. That is such a great point. Thank you. Um, it's very important for people to understand that the probiotics have very specific effects depending on what the bug is, the strain, the species. Mm-hmm. And the one that we have selected um, was selected because we had shown it could induce certain tolerogenic dendritic cells, Mm. um, which are the cells that can pick up antigen, process it and present it to naive T cells and instruct towards a particular response. And in the case of a tolerogenic dendritic cell, it instructs towards 
tolerance. Mm. So what we think is happening is, um, that, well, we know that the probiotic can induce tolerogenic dendritic cells. So we believe that um, what happens when you present both the probiotic and the peanut antigen is that you get induction of the tolerogenic dendritic cells. The tolerogenic dendritic cells pick up, process the peanut antigen that's co-administered, presents it to the naive T cell that we continue to make throughout our life mm-hmm. and instructs this new baby T cell to become a tolerance T cell. Yeah, right. And over time, you get a build-up of these tolerance T cells. That becomes and the, the norm. balance yeah. tips in wow. favour of tolerance. That's what we think. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's amazing. And, and is there? Um, I mean, just briefly before we go, yeah. there are other allergens beyond peanuts. Uh, is the the idea that this will be sort of you know, broadly applicable to a to a whole range of different problems? Yeah, I believe that the approach should be applicable to other food allergies because really it's the dendritic cell that's being induced that's key and that dendritic cell can then pick up mm. uh, whatever antigen is co-administered. It yeah, from a fantastic. personal perspective, please do walnut next. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's fantastic. Now, if people want more information on the various activities uh, with regards to the Day of Immunology, uh, go to dayofimmunology.org.au and they're all listed there, including um, your speaking at the Doherty Institute on the 3rd, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. on Friday. Yeah. On Friday. So um, that would be cool for a couple of the speakers as well, including Misty Jenkins from Wehi and Ben Marsland from Monash. So um, some good stuff there, but, uh, yeah, worth getting along to if you have time. So that public lecture is open to anybody to attend if they want to hear and more about it. you just walk in the front door. There's no security there. You can register, there. no I think, security. online. Yeah, have a look online, folks. All the details are there. There's a whole of um, secondary school workshops going on, heaps of stuff with regards to day of immunology for this week. So it would be very cool. Mimi, it's great to talk to you again. It's fantastic to hear that this work is going so well. I think the last time we, we met was a, a three or four years ago and it was in progress, but to hear these outcomes is just fabulous for a, a lot of families. going to be very excited. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, Mimi Tang. She is a professor from uh, the Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in a moment, folks. Uh, Dr. Crystal, great having you in the studio. Always a pleasure. Dr. Ray, thanks so much. It was fun. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, folks, science is everywhere, and uh, we love bringing it to you each week. And we'll chat to you again next week with uh, some more science. Until then, we'll hand over to the team from Edith. Thanks so much for listening to 3 Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.